You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, howdy, Foothills Church. Good to see you guys here today. If you've got your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 18. Uh, We are in a series working our way through the entire Gospel of John. And so if you're new, uh, this is a great way for you to dive into God's Word and read it beforehand. We're going to be in the second part of chapter 18 next Sunday. And we're going to look at the first uh, 11 verses today. And, And by the way, today is our fifth anniversary for being in this building. And so I want to celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness. When we were a little church meeting inside a school, we were praying for this, and so I always want to recognize that and remember that. How many of you guys were here when we first came over here on that first Sunday? All right, several, several folks in the room. So man, God has done so much as a result, and uh, man, just excited about that. And today we're going to see the Garden of Gethsemane. This is one of the most powerful passages of Scripture in all of the New Testament. In fact, the next several weeks as we go to 18, 19, 20, and 21 uh, chapters of John, we're going to see the most incredible, most passionate moments of the life of Jesus. So you're not going to want to miss. In fact, this is a perfect time to invite family, friends to come and to hear about Jesus because this is the final day of his life. Uh, Let me start this morning by asking you how you specifically handle pressure in your life. How do you deal with the tension of life? How do you deal with work when there's tension there? How do you deal with relationships when there's pressure? I think all of us kind of have different ways of dealing with pressure. I, I know some guys will, will say they go to the gym to work out, so I want to hit the bench press or maybe hit, hit the treadmill and just kind of run and deal with that tension. I know Pastor Brandt likes to do Zumba, and so that's, uh, that's, one, that's how he relieves that uh, stress in his life. Um, I know some people, you know, say that they work best under pressure. How many of you say, I work best when I'm under pressure? Yep. How many of you students in the room, you work best when the test is the next day, so the night before is your best studying? Yeah, your parents don't like that about you. But uh, yeah, sometimes that extra pressure allows us to focus more, work harder, those kinds of things, maybe more productive for some people. Some people just fold under pressure. You know, they, they experience a little pressure and then they just totally melt and they, 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 they just can't handle it. And some people almost have like a natural, you know, like mutant gene to be able to, you know, handle pressure at all levels and they never seem to be shaken. And, you know, I think how we deal with pressure says a lot about us. And I think how Jesus dealt with the pressure of the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane in our text today tells us a lot about him. He tells us and shows us how we should respond and react when we are experiencing pressure in our life as well. You see, pressure isn't necessarily a bad thing. You realize that God uses pressure in our life. Uh, Let me explain it like this. This is a rubber band and on its own, not really very useful. But when you take a rubber band and you add pressure, when you add tension, it becomes very useful. And in fact, the more tension I put on this rubber band, the, the stronger it becomes, the bigger impact it can have, and, and, and the more powerful and, and, and the more potential that we will be able to use from it. And so in a lot of ways, God will add that same pressure or tension to our life. And as we experience, and that, as we experience that tension, and as we experience that tension and pressure, it's just like we can actually go further, faster. Oh man, much further in this service than the first service, so good, good catch. Good snag. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we see him in the garden experiencing 
more tension and pressure than you and I could ever imagine. And yet how he deals with it, how he handles it, is beautiful. And I think if you walk into this room today and you're one that would say, man, I've got a lot of pressure at work. You know, I've got you know, deadlines coming up. And so whether you're dealing with deadlines or whether you're dealing with tests, if you're a student, whether you're dealing with relationship issues, maybe it's a, you're going through a divorce or you're taking care of somebody who's sick or, or there's just a, you know, a rough relational patch going on. You're at odds with somebody at this point and there's hurt feelings and there's just pressure. I think how Jesus handles and utilizes and leverages the pressure that God puts on him will change our life if we'll apply it to our life today. And so I want us to look at John 18 and and look at how Jesus leverages this pressure for the glory of God. It says this in verse one, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook brook Kidron uh, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Let's just pause there. So so Jesus is in the upper room. He's praying. We saw last week he was praying for unity. If you missed that sermon, I encourage you to go online and to watch it. But he's praying and institutes the Lord's Supper at that point. And and he tells Judas to go, do what you've got to do. And he knows Judas is leaving to go betray him. And then he decides to cross the Kidron Valley, the brook Kidron, and go to the the Garden of Gethsemane on on the Mountain of Olives. And so the city of Jerusalem is on top of a mountain. And then there is a valley, much like the hills here in Tennessee. And so there's a valley called the Kidron Valley. It's still called the Kidron Valley today. There's a creek at the bottom of it, only in the rainy season though. And so it very easily crossed. And and then it goes up the, the, the Mount of Olives. And in the center of the Mountain of Olives, because there's a lot of olive trees there, was a garden uh, called Gethsemane. And so Jesus very clearly goes to this place, and it says here in verse 2 that Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. You see, that's an important little tidbit in the story. Judas knew that place. Judas knew that's where Jesus hung out. He knew he was going to go there. He knew that because he'd spent a lot of time there with him. And so you might think that, you know, if Jesus, you know, knew that he was going to be betrayed, he knew what Judas was getting ready to go do, you might think Jesus might, you know, skip out of town. He might leave. He might go hide. You know, he, he would do something to avoid arrest. But he doesn't do that. He goes to a very familiar place. Almost as if, you know, he, he, he knows that it's going to happen and he wants it to happen. He's not trying to avoid it. This is an important point when you look at this arrest. You see, it's at night. It's the night before Passover. There, there would have been a full moon on this night. So, you know, the, the, the moon shining brightly upon this mountain. Jesus goes there, a familiar place, ready to be arrested. And then it says that a detachment or a band of soldiers came to arrest him. There's actually two groups. The band of soldiers, some translations translated a detachment of Roman soldiers came um, and, and what a lot of people don't realize is that because of his Passover uh, week, that, that many thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews would have been in Jerusalem that, that didn't normally live there to come to celebrate Passover. And so there would have been you know, more and more, there would have been thousands more Roman soldiers there during that time because they were always worried about you know, some rebel or some you know, fight that would break out. And so they would put more soldiers there. So the detachment in, in the Greek writings literally meant up to a thousand soldiers. 
And so this detachment of Roman soldiers, several hundred soldiers, with the temple police. This was the police from the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish um, uh, Sanhedrin police. And so these two groups came together. So many people believe that this would have been hundreds of soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. I know in the movies sometimes we only see like 10 or 15 But evidently, there were hundreds there. And they came with lanterns and torches, even amidst the the full moon, where they could have seen very, you know, much clearer on that night. But they had these torches because perhaps they thought Jesus would be hiding. They also bring weapons because they are ready for a fight. They're coming to arrest him, and they thought very likely this might turn into a fight. And so they come to arrest Jesus here, and, and, and Jesus is willingly ready to receive them. So let's continue. He says this, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, I love this part of the story. I mean, it's, 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 it's so, such a tense-ridden part of the gospel. Here is Jesus with the 11 disciples. He asked them to pray, but it's in the wee hours of the night, and so they kept falling asleep. The, the, the scripture says that Jesus prayed on a rock, and so he's pouring his heart out to God. He's praying. He knows this is about to happen. Then all the soldiers with weapons show up. They've got lanterns and torches, and they're ready to fight. And as they approach him, Jesus knows what's going to happen. And he looks and he sees Judas standing among the soldiers. Can you imagine what the other guys felt at that point? Can you imagine the tension and the anger that they would have experienced when they saw Judas, that betrayer, that backstabber, show up with the soldiers to arrest, they thought, perhaps even them. And so it's at that moment Jesus says, who are you looking for? And the scripture says that they asked for Jesus of Nazareth. And it says, Jesus answered, I am he. Now that Greek phrase is translated here is actually ego I me. Not the waffle at all kind of commercial that you're thinking of right now. But it actually means I am, I am. And so when Jesus says that, he's not like your teenage daughter that is saying after you tell her to clean her room, I am dad, I am, he's not saying it like that. What he's referring to is, is the exact way that God responded to Moses in Exodus 3. As God is speaking through the burning bush to Moses, Moses says, who do I say sent me? And God responds to him, tell them that I am has sent you. So Jesus is referring to his, uh, his divinity here. He's referring to the fact that he and the Father are one, that he is truly divine. He is God in the flesh. He says, I am, I am. And notice the scripture says that some fell back. In other words, some ran away. They got scared and ran when he said that. And some fell to the ground. So obviously there was some kind of thundering authority that took place in this moment. When he said that, people got freaked out and some people ran and some people left and some people just fell to the ground because of his power. Let's continue the story. He asked again in verse 7, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. In other words, he points to the 11 disciples and he says, let these guys go. You're not here for them. Just come for me. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I've lost no one. 
Then Simon Peter, I love this part. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now the reason why I can say as a pastor and a Christian that I love this part, even though somebody just got injured here, is because Jesus heals him, right? It's not in the Gospel of John, but in the other Gospels it says that Jesus healed him. So it's perfectly okay for me to laugh at this. Okay, and you can laugh too. Like, like Peter got so mad. He sees Judas there. I'm sure he wanted that sword to meet Judas. I mean, I would have if, if I'm going to be honest with you. But he, but he pulls out a sword. He's there to protect Jesus. And he cuts, I don't know how, I don't know if he was aiming for the ear. I don't know how you get to the ear. You know, usually you would think a stabbing or maybe a shoulder, an arm. But he gets his ear. I guess he, 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 he dodged the blade. For whatever reasons, he cuts off his right ear. And Jesus says, bro, put your sword away. Shall I not drink this cup that the Father has given to me? That's a very interesting phrase. Like, what is he talking about there with the cup? And, and, and you know, what you've got to know is that in the sacrificial system, when they would, in the Old Testament, the Israelites, well, even at the time of Jesus, they are sacrificing a lamb for the sins of the people. They put their hands on the lamb, symbolizing the sins of the people on the lamb. Then they sacrifice the lamb. They take the blood from the lamb. They fill it in a cup. And then from the cup, they sprinkle it on the altar. And that is the symbolism of how they have placed the sins, the, 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 the animal has been sacrificed for the sins of the people. And, and, and so the cup there is, is, is very symbolic. Jesus says, I, shall I not drink this cup? Remember in the upper room when Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, he passes around the what? The cup filled with the, the, the wine that represented the blood of Jesus. So Jesus takes this new cup. It used to symbolize the blood from the lamb that we sprinkled for the sins of the world. Now I want you to take this cup and fill it with wine, and it's going to symbolize the blood that I spill on the cross. As often as you drink from this cup, remember me. And now in the garden, this same idea, this cup that he is about to drink, is the, is the reality that the wrath of God is now going to be poured out of this cup onto the life of Jesus. Not because God is angry at him, not because Jesus sinned, not because he deserved it, but because he willingly decided to go to the cross as our substitute. So the wrath from God that you deserve, that I deserved, wasn't poured out on us, but it was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And so Jesus looks to Peter and he says, shall I not receive this cup, this cup of suffering, this cup of sacrifice, this cup that represents the wrath of God. Put away your sword. It's also interesting to note that Peter had a sword. How cool is that? Like he wasn't the bathrobe Peter you see on Lifetime, you know, movies. Like he was a rugged, you know, hardcore, you know, dude. And, and all of these guys were. And so I imagine them all carrying swords and, 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 and all ready to fight at a moment's notice and, 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 and walking with Jesus on this night. What's interesting about this garden is, first and foremost, God does some awesome things in gardens. You know, if you notice that, Garden of Eden. Then in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is arrested. Jesus ascends to heaven from the Mount of Olives in this same area. And the Bible says that he's coming again to the Mount of Olives. So that's where he's going to come and return. And so it's in this garden that great things happen. And, and when we look to the Garden of Gethsemane, we realize that there are a lot of great things happening behind the scenes that I wanted to pull out 
and show you and some things that I learned when I was in Israel that blew me away. Standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, you see these hundreds and hundreds of trees that are hundreds of years old. Huge, massive, gnarly looking trees. And, and many people believe that they are the same trees that were there during the biblical times. Now, the Romans cut them all down and used them for firewood back around AD 70. But because uh, olive trees are so like hardy, that doesn't necessarily kill them. And so a lot of people realize and, and believe that from the roots of those ancient olive trees, these new trees have grown. And so, so it's, it's just the history and, and the, just the amount of, of, of trees that are there is just astonishing. It's so amazing. And, and this mountain would have been filled with olive trees. And it's not anymore, but there are some in this garden and, 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 and scattered throughout. But in this garden, we see a, a big uh, uh, symbol taking place because the, the olive tree for the Israelite people meant a great deal. Olives in general were a huge part of their culture. Physically, the olive provided food for them, provided medicine for them, fuel for them. It was a base for the anointing of kings and all the other you know, special uh, 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 ceremonial practices that involved oil. Spiritually, if you read the New Testament, you see that the olive represents faithfulness or the olive tree represents steadfastness and endurance and new life and so many other things. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about how it's, it's, it's the, the, the olive branch where the Gentiles are grafted into the promises of the Israelite people now through the blood of Jesus Christ and now you know, uh, being able to experience that promise and hope of salvation. So it's, it's, a, it's a very symbolic um, uh, tree, very symbolic plant. Even the olive you know, uh, leaves today represent universally peace. And so it's a, it's a big part of their culture. And uh, one of the reasons why the olive tree is so fruitful in, in the Jerusalem climate is both because of the east wind, which comes from the desert, a very dry, harsh wind, and then also the west wind that comes from the Mediterranean Sea that, that brings a cooler air, that brings rain and refreshment. And so that's the kind of climate that the olive tree thrives in, both a harsh wind from the east and a refreshing, cooler breeze from the west. And, you know, in our lives, the same is true. We need both the harsh winds of suffering in our life to bring us closer to Jesus and we also need the refreshing, cooler winds from the West that revive us and that energize us through the spirit of the living God. Another thing to consider about the olive tree is that the olive in general is very, very, very hard and very, very bitter. I don't know if you've ever eaten a freshly picked olive, but they are extremely bitter and, and, and very hard. And so there is a long process for the olive itself to go through before you put it on your pizza. I don't know if you like that. I can't stand that. But one of the things that the olive has to go through is a soaking. They have to soak it in water to soften it up. And then they have to break it down. And then they have to salt it to kind of give it that flavor that, that um, so many people enjoy. And, and, and it's interesting that this process all takes place and, and it makes so much sense when you think through a hardness or a bitterness which is potentially in some of us today. Because there is a long journey, a long process that needs to take place for a bitter heart, for a hard heart. To be able to overcome whatever it is we've experienced and for God to use it in a fruitful and blessed way. You know, in the same way that harsh 
you know, east wind, that refreshing west wind is needed in our life, on our journey to grow and, and, to, and to mature and, and for our heart to, to, to break down and, and for that pride and that envy and that selfishness and a host of other sins to be broken down. And, and we have to soak our heart in the truth of God. Our heart needs to be salted by the Lord Jesus to become the salt of the earth. And on and on we could go to make application, but a couple of things that I think that we learned from the Garden of Gethsemane. First off, the actual word Gethsemane means oil press. And so when you think about a huge like mountain filled with olive trees, it's probably a good idea to, in the center of that, make an, 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 an olive press, right? And so an, an olive press at that time was this huge cutout stone, and then they would, they would have this massive stone that would sit in the groove there, and an animal would just pull it around in a circle. And so when you wanted to get the best part of the olive, you had to put the olive on this press, and then this stone would roll around on it, press out the best part, because the best part of the olive is the oil. It was the most valuable part. It's the most useful part. It's the most expensive part. And so when we look at the life of Jesus, we see him in this garden where so many amazing things are happening in Scripture. And we see him specifically going to the garden of the oil press to pray and to be arrested. I don't think it's by accident. I think Jesus had all of this in mind when we look to this garden. You see, how do you, how do you get the olive off the tree? How did, they, how, how did they harvest the crop? They had to shake it. They had to shake it. And so they would take, you know, um, these, these big sticks or whatever, and they would shake the tree, shake the branches, and, 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 and just wiggle it to make all the olives fall down. Now they have these big, massive, you know, tractors that will come around the trunk and shake it. You see, in the same way, for us to grow, for our hardness and bitterness inside our own heart, God's got to send events in our life that shake us up. You see, you're going to be shook up to start that healing process. Some of us experience that shake up and we instantly blame God or run from God. And that's not what God's trying to do. He wants you to run to him. Don't be surprised when these trials come. Don't be surprised when relationships are going through turmoil. Don't be surprised when you're experiencing pressure and stress. Because God is going to bring these situations in your life to shake you up, to get this healing process started. And so not only does God shake us up, but God also presses us. Because it's through this pressing that God gets the most valuable part out of me. To get the best out of you, God will press you. Just like the olive, he'll put us on the, the oil press. Just like Jesus in the garden of the oil press and the garden of Gethsemane. We will lie on that press and God will press us and he will give uh, tension in our life. He will bring issues and problems in our life. And the more he presses us, the better we can become. There's so much more inside of you. We've got to overcome insecurities. We've got to overcome sin. We've got to overcome fear. And the way that God helps us overcome these things is he shakes us up and then he adds tension in our life, pressure in our life. Wanting us to walk the, this journey of obedience towards him to give him glory. And through the soaking of our hearts in the truth of God's word, he grows us. We experience his peace. We experience his power. He matures our heart. He matures our thought life. We overcome insecurities. We overcome fear. But it must take place 
in this process. You see, we can't shortcut the process. We can't jump over lessons of life. We have to walk through the tension. We have to walk through the pressure. Just like the rubber band. The rubber band has so much more uh, potential when it's stretched. It has so much uh, more impact when we apply that tension. And in the same way, we must go through this as well. Now Jesus, as I mentioned, like no other, is experiencing this tension. He has so much pressure upon his shoulders in this garden. As he's experiencing this, we see his prayer in the other Gospels, and I specifically want to read Luke chapter 22 to get more of a picture for for what he's saying in this moment. So you can look on the screen. It says this in Luke 22, 39. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Here's that cup symbolism again. And then he says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And listen to this. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Folks, this is a tension and a pressure and a weight like you and I have never experienced. And yet he handles this pressure with grace, with beauty, with strength, with power. And we want to emulate what Jesus is doing here. We want to recognize first and foremost that God is going to press us. He's going to press you to get the best out of you. You see, to get the best out of Jesus, he had to be pressed. For us to enjoy salvation, he had to be crushed for our iniquities. He had to be wounded. He had to go to the cross. He had to experience this suffering so that we would receive the blessing, that God would receive the glory, and that Jesus would receive the glory. So he couldn't shortcut the process. Folks, you can't shortcut it as well. Paul says it well in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we're hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Folks, this is what we experience in life. Like, I mean, we are pressed on every side. You feel pressure at work. You feel pressure spiritually or physically or emotionally. You're dealing with somebody that is sick. You're dealing with anxiety. Whatever it is in your life, you feel this pressure. And yet through this pressure, we're not crushed. We're perplexed. In other words, we don't know what the heck is going on. However, we're not in despair because we trust that God is in control. We're persecuted, and so we experience persecution in the world, but we realize that we have not been abandoned by God. We're struck down. I mean, the world will strike you down. Sometimes even your friends and the people that you think love you will strike you down. But he says you're not destroyed. So here's the reality. In the process, God won't abandon you, and he's definitely not going to allow this situation to destroy you. Isn't that great? You feel like God's not there. You feel like God is not with you. But guess what? He has never left you. He has not abandoned you. Maybe you just haven't run to him to experience him through this process. 
Maybe you feel like you've been struck down. You're definitely perplexed. There's pressure on every side. But this situation will not and cannot destroy you. It will not hold you back from becoming the man or the woman that God has called you to become. In fact, God quite possibly might have brought this situation into your life to press you so that you would grow, so that you would give him the glory, so that you would experience him in a deeper way. So for us to get that truth today, for us to wrap our minds around that, we've got to stop being selfish. We've got to stop playing the victim card at every turn. We've got to take responsibility for our life. We gotta, we, gotta, we gotta man up in many ways and trust that God loves us, he's in control, and live every day for the glory of God. You see, I, I realize for myself, and, and I know this for you as well, that there's a reality to our past. The reality to our past is that there are a lot of memories that haunt us. There are a lot of circumstances that cause us to act in the certain ways that we act today because of that sin. But our past sin, Sin cannot and should not dictate your future destiny. God has so much more for you. And you cannot allow yourself to miss out on everything that God wants you to experience. You know, as a church, we're constantly like feeling this tension and pressure as we're pursuing God's call and and trying to lead this church with all wisdom. And um, part part of our staff culture is that we want to plant churches. We want to send people into ministry. And so we're constantly praying for that and thinking that way. And, and even when we planted Foothills Church, the mentality was that one day, yes, we're planting this church, but one day we're going to be a church that will plant other churches. And, and we just believe that that is a, a calling upon our life and, and a calling and an important um, strategy to impact the culture for the gospel. That is the best way to impact a community for the gospel, uh, to, to plant a church there and to help that church flourish and reach people for Christ. And so we know that's part of who we are. And, and as, a, as a church, we're, we've been looking and praying when that timing is going to be. And I, I believe we're getting uh, really close. I know the, the, the property and building is a big part of that. And, and so we want to go around this area, but we want to go all over the, the country and world as well. And so we partner with organizations like the North American Mission Board who has uh, just a, a collaboration, hundreds of churches that support financially uh, other, other guys that, and families that are, that are planting churches. And so we partner with them. We give money to them. And I've and, uh, been trained and, 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 and uh, uh, been connected with them for some time. And, you know, one of the things about Pastor Greg is that he started here six years ago, I guess, and um, he always wanted to plant a church. And we were like, you know what, we're, we're going to plant a church and we're praying through this and we're, we're going we're gonna to deal with this and, and see where God leads us. And, you know, about, a, oh, I guess it was last spring, he came to me and said, Trent, I think God is, 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 is really pressing me and, and he's really just kind of laying this on my heart. And so through the summer, we, we really got, you know, more strategic and thinking about it and <clears throat> praying through it. And um, this whole year has been this, this praying through and just tension and pressure of this calling that God has placed on his life and this calling that he's placed on, on me as the, as the leader to plant churches and then yet having my brother-in-law who's you know my best friend to kind of do this, but I want you to go, bro, but I don't want you to go too far, you know? And so as we're praying through this, he came to me and he said, you know what, I feel like I know where God wants me to plant. And I was like, where? And he said, Washington, D.C. And I said, really? And this was several months ago, and so 
the North American Mission Board has what they call send cities. And they've identified several cities across the U.S. where there's a huge population and a very small percentage of churches that are there. And so um, D.C. is one of those areas. And so he came to me and he said that. And I was like, bro, are you sure? And he's like, I don't know. I think so. And so we prayed about it. And he, he, he prayed more. And several months passed by. And, and um, I'm excited. There's a bittersweet moment here for me. All right. Um, I, I, I don't want to lose Pastor Greg because I love him. And he does an incredible job for us. And then there's this other excited part where we as Foothills Church are going to this summer plant and be a part of, with other churches, the planning of our first church. And that's exciting to me. And I think that deserves a little applause and some excitement. Isn't that awesome? So, <clears throat> so he's going to be moving up there this summer. And um, man, this has been a very long process for us. When I talk about tension and pressure, man, we have felt it to this end and to this decision and, uh, but I'm confident that this is where, what God wants for him. And, and uh, so he's partnering with churches up there this summer. And there's a whole group of people. We are called the Sending Church. So our elders will be his elders. Um, we, we'll be overseeing the budget and we'll be pouring into him through this process. But, uh, man, we're excited that as a church we get to impact a city like Washington, D.C. And so we're praying that the president will go to his church and find Jesus. And <clears throat> You need to hear him talk about D.C., and so we're going to give him opportunities to share over the coming months, but um, his heart for, for what could and should happen there is pretty awesome, and so I'm excited for him, and, and there's, a, there's a cheap flight to D.C. now, so I'm not going to tear up, but let's look back to the life of Jesus here, and let's see a couple of things as I close, how he dealt with pressure and how we have to deal with pressure. So the first thing I want to point out is that Jesus, through this, this, this time, especially in this garden, he is courageously walking in obedience. Think about what he's doing. He knows what's about to happen. He knows it's going to be difficult. He knows it's going to be challenging. Guys, he knows he's going to die. He knows the death he's going to experience. And yet he courageously walks in obedience. You see, some of you are afraid to do what God is calling you to do today. You're afraid to get connected. You're afraid to go. You're, you're afraid to be sent. Granted, there's a lot of reasons why we fear certain things. And, and on this front, planting a church, there, there's a lot of fear there. But we can't allow that fear to stop us from following and trusting God. Some of you got to trust God that he's going to work this situation out. You don't see how it's going to happen. You don't understand it all. But you know that you're supposed to take this step. So you have to take that step if you want to be obedient. The second thing that I think we see is that Jesus is passionately going to God in prayer. Now, the reality is many Christians have an anemic prayer life. I mean, our prayer life is, is weak and it's, it's just it's absent. And so we, we fail to understand the power of prayer Jesus is on his face in agony. He's, he's, he's on his face suffering so much, so stressed out, that his sweat becomes drops of blood. I mean, that is intense. And God answers his prayer by sending him an angel to minister to him. Now, I believe God will answer your prayer during this time by using the Holy Spirit in your life. We see that in the New Testament. Um, and, and, and so we, we see the New Testament teaching us that the Holy Spirit is there to guide us into all truth. 
to encourage us and to bless us and to equip us. And so it's the presence of the Holy Spirit living within us in our agony, in our suffering that will minister to us as we seek the face of God in prayer. The third thing that I see here is that Jesus is willing to embrace change. I think so many people are so afraid of change. You're afraid to change because you don't, there's this unknown factor, you know. If we change, then what if, and what if that's going to happen? But the reality here is Jesus is willing to embrace change. As he goes to the cross, it changes everything for him. He's humiliated. His disciples now won't have him, and so everything changes for them. But he knows that change is often necessary for us to grow. In fact, if you're not changing today, I would say that you're not growing today. I think it's a reality that the greatest stretching seasons of life come when we do things that we have never done. But that is exactly what we're afraid of, isn't it? We've never done that. I don't know how it's going to turn out. But that's exactly how we grow. We push ourselves harder. We reach out to God in ways that are, that are new to us. We're uncomfortable and yet we have courage and, and God grows us. And, and the good news is that it causes us to grow in ways that we never thought possible. So we've got to change if we want to grow as a church and you as a couple, as an individual. Fifthly, I believe that Jesus accepted suffering for God's glory. This is the tough one. He accepted what God wanted him to experience. He accepted the suffering for God's glory. He says, I am, I am. In other words, I'm right here. I am in the flesh and I'm not running from this. I'm going to walk in this. God, if there's any way for you to pass this cup on, but not my will, your will be done. You see, the same stance must be taken by you if you want to grow today. If you want to experience more of Jesus, if you want to be a faithful disciple, God, this is not what I want exactly. God, I would want this to take place. I kind of wanted this to happen, but you brought this. And and so not my will, God, your will. If you want me to face this, if you want me to experience this, then I say, yes, I embrace this suffering for your glory. And every step of the way, I'm going to look to you. I'm going to point to you. I'm going to show people who you are. I'm going to share with people what you've done in my heart because this life is all about you. It's not about me. Jesus embraced suffering for God's glory. You see, growth stops when there's no tension in your life. You know, having less pressure makes you less productive in so many ways. And so We've got to embrace this step. We've got to undergo this growth that God wants to experience, wants God, that God wants us to experience by going to, as Jesus did, the oil press, the Garden of Gethsemane, undergoing this pressure and this tension. And by embracing this tension to give glory to God, he grows you in ways you never thought possible. You impact people in ways you never thought could be. The power in your life is so large that that you never dreamed you you would be able to think a certain way or act a certain way or live a certain way. But it's all because God takes us through the oil press. He takes us through the suffering. And if you'll embrace him and walk with him, he'll grow you as well. Would you pray with me, please? Maybe the pressure in your life is you think more than you can bear. 
And for whatever reasons, you know, you're here today and maybe God spoke to you. Maybe one of the things you've realized is that, you know what, I need Jesus. And you've never, you've never taken that step to receive him into your life as Lord and Savior. And maybe you're here and you're just like, man, I need somebody to help me process this suffering that I'm experiencing. I want to encourage you to stop by the care and prayer room. It's to your left when you walk out these back doors. And we've got folks there that want to help you make this decision. We've got folks there that want to pray with you and encourage you. Whatever it is that God is doing in your life. Here's what I know, like you need godly people in your life to help you through these situations. If you're trying to do something on your own, you are, you're like an orphan running around with, with, with no parental you know, help. You need a church family to help you walk through this. Some of you are just being flat out disobedient. You know the step God wants you to take and you're being stubborn. That hardness of heart kind of wells up within you and God needs to take that heart through the pressing once again to get the best out of you. You see, there is more in you, more that God wants to do, more that God wants you to experience. Your past is not going to define you. God has a future for you. He's got a plan for you. But you've got to follow him. You've got to walk in obedience with him. And you've got to pursue him. I've asked the band to lead us in a closing song today that helps us process this, this idea of living through the tension and the pressure. And I'm gonna encourage you to worship however God leads you, whether it's to come and to pray, pray at your seat, or to stand and lift up your hands and worship. Let's respond to God this morning, for he is good to us. He's not abandoned us. We're perplexed, but, but he is with us. And we wanna worship him as a result. Lord Jesus, we offer our hearts to you today. We are uh, in a room filled with, with, with folks who are far from you, and we pray that you would draw them closer to you. There are people in this room, God, that are experiencing suffering, and you spoke to them today. You shared some truth with them today that they need to embrace, and I pray, God, that they would, that you'd penetrate their heart, and they'd walk with you in obedience. Father, for all of us, you're calling us to do more. You're stretching us to experience you more. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. Help us to imitate the life of Jesus. In the midst of the pressure, we give glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.